Are you looking for a new math curriculum? CTC Math specializes in providing online video tutorials that take a multi-sensory approach to learning, creative graphics and animation synchronized with the friendly voice of internationally acclaimed teacher Pat Murray makes learning math easy and effective. Favorably reviewed and Kathy Duffy's 103 top picks and the Old Schoolhouse Crew review. The lessons are short and concise to help your child break down concepts and appreciate math in a whole new way. Visit ctcmath.com today to start your free trial. That's ctcmath.com. Hey, everybody. So glad you're back. The enthusiasm for this partnership between Melissa and me is high and satisfying. Melissa, say hi. Hello. Yay. I'm so happy we're back again. So tell me what you told me about Scott's roommate from college. I was hearing from a lot of friends that they listened to uh, the episode that aired last week. And Scott's college roommate said he listened to it twice. Okay, come on. Come on, you guys. That's pretty good. That is a litmus test I didn't know I needed. That is amazing. Uh, Same. I think what was so fun about listening to all of your feedback, and you guys were amazing. You sent us text messages, email messages, direct messages, comments on Instagram. Here's the universal theme that emerged. You want practical help. You don't just want good theory about why education that parents lead is important, whether that's homeschool or after schooling or parents invested in um, alternative methods of education. You want to know some stuff to do. Am I right? You're absolutely right. And I feel like that's been a through line for me over the years. Like I love to fill my head with interesting theories and ideology and to really dig into that. But But when I'm on the couch with a two-year-old on my head and I'm trying to do a read aloud for that 10-year-old, I need practical, you know, like that was what I always felt like, great, these are wonderful ideas, but what do I do? Oh my (laughs) gosh, 100%. And here's the thing that we just discovered while we're just sitting here chatting, (laughs) both Lisa and I are theater kids. Like we grew up doing plays and being in drama classes, right? Lissa, when did you start acting in your childhood? Um, Really early in elementary school. And then by high school, like I was really, I went to a theater conservatory program for my first two years of college. Um, And then that college um, got sold uh, to a Japanese university and it uh, like, Everything was happening in Japanese, so the program ended. (laughs) Um, And so I transferred and wound up changing my major to English, but I was still in plays all the way through. I mean, I feel like it just sort of never stopped for me. Being in plays stopped. Yes, right. Well, that's so familiar to me. So my very first stage appearance, I was five years old on the stage of my elementary school auditorium as a kindergartner in a Boston Tea Party act out. And I was like in this outfit my mother made for me. I even used it for Halloween that year. And my mom said, just from the beginning, I just loved being on the stage. And by the time I was in third grade, I was like the lead in the third grade play. I don't, yeah. Why do you have a play in third grade? I don't know. But I did theater all the way through junior high and high school. (laughs) And interestingly, I started out as a theater major at UCLA 
And then weirdly saw the connection to Hollywood and realized I didn't want that life. Like Mm -hmm. I loved the stage life and I loved acting and I loved actually tech theater was equally fascinating to me. Lighting, stage management, all that stuff. But I realized it wasn't the life I wanted as an adult. Did that happen to you? It was very similar. I I actually got really mad at Mr. Scott Peterson in college. Who's, <laughs> who I, is Scott Peterson? Who the pod Scott doesn't Peterson? know Scott. He was my college boyfriend. Who and is one he now? Day, <laughs> <laughs> one day I thought, oh no, I don't want to be going off to New York and being in plays all the time. I want to marry this boy and have 1 million babies with him. <laughs> and but, so I mean, we did. quit at six. So like, <laughs> you know, lots of restraint. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So even though both of us didn't turn this into our professional careers, we started talking about our approach to home education and very quickly discovered that there is a lot of kinesthetic activity that supported how we taught. So if you've used any of our products, and I mean, that's, you know, Growing Brave Writers, Help for High School, or the quill, the dart, the arrow, the boomerang, and the slingshot, what we affectionately call the Q-dabs for all those (laughs) who want to be in the Brave Writer in-group. And in the Q-dabs, the quill and the dart written by Melissa, she's also written some of our arrow program. We have other people who work with us. We are constantly looking for what? Kinesthetic relationship, right? To that learning. Yes. It's one of the the biggest pieces of the work that I do with the DART is figuring out what are my activities going to be. And by activities, I mean, how to let the kids get up and get moving, how to let them embody the concepts that we're introducing. And when I'm writing those from the very beginning, writing arrows, and then when you rolled out the DART and I started writing DARTs, I I always have in my head and very often, like literally by my side, my own children. And my my youngest was pretty young. Um, he, he just turned 14. So he would have been um, maybe eight when I started writing Arrows. So I would always think like, oh, like, how do I get this kid off the couch <laughs> before, before he breaks the couch? Yes. Um, because it- that body needs to move. That's exactly right. So what I remember is I had five kids and kind of what you said, you know, you'd want to give attention to these older kids who had like specific, you know, tutorial needs around fractions or they're doing something where they're having to concentrate and write. And then I'd have these rambunctious little guys that I'd like farm out to watch Mary Poppins on my bed, or I would give them Play-Doh or something to do while they were away from me. But what I discovered, especially with five kids is that the younger kids wanted to feel like they had that same kind of academic connection to me, that I wasn't just pacifying them or playing with them, but that they were learning something and they could tell that this was our relationship, just like I had with the older kids. So there was this moment where I realized my two youngest kids had sort of fallen through the hole, loophole. (laughs) They didn't know their address. They didn't know the months of the year. They didn't know the days of the week. And it suddenly occurred to me I needed to teach these things. So I made this little guide. It was a flip, like a flip chart. And I had 
the months of the year. Now they weren't even like reading age yet, but I drew a little picture and I had a countdown from 20 down to one. So you could count backwards because I had read somewhere counting forward and backwards mattered. And so anyway, when we started trying to memorize, it was very boring. And then all of a sudden I realized when we were counting down from 20, whenever we got to the end, I had automatically said blast off. (laughs) And it suddenly occurred to me, they could be jumping off of a chair. So we got these two chairs. I put my two kids on it and we started with the countdown. And when we got to blast off, they jumped into the air and then crumpled onto a very hard floor. And I realized, oh no, no, they need some pillow clouds. So we pulled all the pillows off the couch and we put them on the ground. And now they were blasting off and jumping into the pillow clouds. Well, the next thing you know, they wanted to do that a thousand times. So that's right. So that's how we started reciting like the months of the year and the seasons of the year and the days of the week and skip counting by two, skip counting by three. And it was only because they could scramble up on a chair and yell blast off and jump off that they were willing to cooperate with me. And I was like, this is genius, Julie. Big pat on my own back. No, it is. You gamified it and you made it physical. So that made it fun. We used to do, we would do beanbag tosses when we were practicing like times tables because somehow like tossing three, six, nine and skip counting that way, the physical action embeds the information in your brain a different way. And we, um, we would do, we started, oh gosh, when they were little, my husband's mother Scott's mom had taught me this little song that she and Scott had learned when he was five years old at the library story time. And it was like bend and stretch, reach for the stars. It had motions. And for like 15 years straight, my kids and I started every morning doing bend and stretch. And then sometimes we would we would end it by doing a plank and seeing how high we could get, like in the sevens or the eights um, wow. timetables while hold, you know, and I was always like the first to collapse. <laughs> it's amazing because one of the things that we know from research. Uh, William Rhinesmith, I quote him in my book, The Brave Learner, and he says that real learning connotes use. If something isn't going to be used, it isn't going to be learned. But for some of these abstract concepts, like how do you use September? How do you use the seasons? And sure, you can point outside as the seasons change. But what I discovered was when I wanted abstraction to be retained by kids, Pairing it with a kinesthetic activity with their bodies was a form of use. It's just what you just said. It's like it got written into the DNA of their bodies. Yes, yes. You know, um, my son, Stephen, who's 19 now, um, has severe hearing loss. He wears hearing aids. He has since infancy. And when he was a baby, we were doing a lot of sign language learning as a family um, using the signing time videos. And what I found was that those videos, which by the way, are amazing. (laughs) Oh, we'll have to put a link for that in our show notes. So anyway, those videos, having the words printed on the screen while you were learning. So you were seeing thank you, saying thank you, and doing thank you. Oh my gosh. Those videos were a big part of how my children all learned to read. Having that physical component, I do it even now. I'm learning Welsh um, for fun, as one does. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you um, are. And 
often I find like I'm learning, you know, girl, and I'm doing the sign um, for my, you know, so that, or mother, so that it sticks in my head because I'm giving my body something to hold on to as well. You know, that's so fascinating that you said that because one of the books that I really enjoyed when my kids were little is from the Brown Paper School book series. Some of you may know it. I know I love them too. (laughs) WordWorks is the one that I'm talking about. And she spends a whole section teaching the finger alphabet in there of sign language. When I was a kid, I had a deaf friend and I had to learn the fingering alphabet when I was in about fourth grade to communicate with her. And it is remarkable how much that really helped me with spelling Help me think about my communication powers. I got really fast at it. But one of the things we know for struggling readers and struggling writers is that they need to connect the sound with the letter. There needs to be an actual connection formed. And so if you're doing ah, 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 and you're, you're looking at the letter and you're making the letter with your hand and you're using your mouth, you're actually forming that kind of whole body connection. And before you jump in, because I see you want to, and I want you to, (laughs) I pulled up the 12 um, Brain Mind Natural Learning Principles by Renata and Jeffrey Kane, who are um, just the most incredible specialists in how children learn. And number one, number one in their 12 principles of learning is all learning is physiological. All learning is physiological. We tend to think it's cognitive. But if you think about reading, you are actually taking a mouth of words and sounds and applying them to symbols on a page. That is a physiological act. It's not just thinking sort of abstractly. It's taking that sound and connecting it to your hand when you write. Like one of the practices that is recommended for copy work is that as the child is writing, they make the verbal sound as they move the pencil. So it's house. It's not just house one time and then they're struggling to copy it, right? Right, right. Oh my gosh, like three things are in my head now. Awesome, go. One is that when Stephen, my son, um, was learning to speak, He, through early intervention, he had speech therapy. And even with hearing aids, there are some sounds that Stephen can't hear. Um, Because when you think about it, like some sounds are unvoiced. They're silent, right? So the P of pizza, the P is always still silent. Um, And there was a technique for teaching kids like Steve. And it had physical motions um, that went with it. And it wasn't the finger spelling letters. It was like... Um, like F, I remember it was coming out from the mouth to help him know that air was leaving his mouth because he would make the tooth shape and not make a sound. Wow. And it took that and some, you know, for him, for his body to get it so that it could make, so he can now make an F sound, even though he's never heard one. That is remarkable. And it totally correlates with my experience of speech therapy for my son, Jacob. (laughs) So my middle child did not speak uh, fluently until he was over three. And during those years, he was still communicating. He created his own little signs. Like dogs always licked the back of his hand. So whenever he wanted to talk about a dog, he would tap the back of his hand. And he had held a frog in the palm of his hand. So when he was talking about frogs, he'd tap the palm of his hand. 
he created these these ways and he still tried to speak. He had no problem trying to speak, but he physiologically had a tongue that was too big for his mouth. Isn't that amazing? Wow. He grew into it. Yes. So when he was about six and a half, seven, he was homeschooled. But something some of you may not know is that schools will provide special services for homeschooling kids, even if they don't attend public school full time. So we found the local elementary school in California, Orange County, and we enrolled him in speech therapy. And that's how he learned to read because she was constantly pairing the letters and the words with helping him shape the sounds in his mouth. That's when the connection came. And as you're saying that, I'm realizing this is like the missing link for a lot of these reading programs. More action with the mouth, less thinking about the spelling, right? Yes, yes. Like getting, getting the feel of it first. And that can happen with lots of of silly language games. Oh my which gosh. Which I know yes. were a huge component of things for you. And Julie, I'm I'm thinking about um when I first started writing the arrows, I had a moment of um because you know I was reading like I had I had like bought some arrows when they were first coming out. I was one of your first arrow customers That's back in right, the day. You were um, the Redwall Arrow. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, then there was a gap where I had not read some for a few years. So when I started writing them, I was reading them all. And I was like, oh, Julie does it too. It was a real epiphany connection moment for me that I don't think I've ever told you. When you um, you had one activity where you were encouraging the parents to do a dipping motion for commas. Oh, Yeah. And I was like, ah, Julie does like body games too. Now, all these years later, I understand a lot of that grew out of that theater connection. When I was in high school, I was in um, a traveling theater troupe. Our drama club would go to elementary schools and act out um, fairy tales and folk tales. And since I had a ton of babysitting jobs at the same time, that's how I would <laughs> entertain the kids. We would act out the three bears. And I feel like then I became a parent and it just I it just folded right into my understanding of what sparks so much delight for the kids. And then that recognition of, oh, it also sparks learning. <laughs> well, did you know that the second principle of the canes, and I wasn't planning to do all 12, <laughs> but the first two are perfect for today. And the second one is the brain mind is social. It's mm. social. So a lot of us, you know, a lot of parents will write to me and they'll say, I don't know how to get my kid to do X. And what they really mean is I want my kid to sit at the table and do X while I'm nursing the baby or while I'm running clothes down to the laundry or while I'm, you know, in the kitchen getting lunch ready. They're looking for a sign of independence. And yet the brain mind is social and learning is physiological. If you put those two together, what you have is kids using their bodies with connection to each other, which is basically theater games. So before we started today's episode, (laughs) Lisa and I made a huge list of the things that we've done with our kids. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to like, just alternate. I'll do one, you do one. You brought up my comma dipping. I'm going to just expand on what that is just for those who don't know what that means. When I used to read the dictation passage, which is just taking a passage out of a novel, reading it aloud, and asking my kids to transcribe it 
using their own hand on a sheet of paper. So that's what dictation is. And I discovered very early on that the results were poor if they hadn't had enough familiarity with the passage. But even if they had copied it and read it, they weren't fluent yet in the feel of punctuation. They could read punctuation, but just like you can learn to understand a language and still not be able to speak it, that's what they were going through with punctuation. So I started giving them silent clues. I would read the passage standing up with the book in my hand. And when I'd get to a comma, I would pause and I would dip my whole body down like like a little, you know, knee bend. And then I'd pop back up and I didn't say a word. And they started to correlate this little pause, this little dip with, oh, that's where commas go, right? When I would get to a period, I'd bring both feet together and stop walking into a full stop, right? When I wanted to indicate a question mark, I'd raise one hand and make the sort of, you know, like the shrug, the question (laughs) shrug. And it was that way that we started to connect punctuation to the lived felt experience of representing that that intonation pattern with a symbol because punctuation's just dots, curves, and lines. Bingo. And you really hit on when you say that intonation pattern. One of the things that we come back to over and over again in the dart, for sure, is that punctuation just exists to help us hear a piece of writing the way the writer wants us to hear it. Exactly. The writer wants you to hear those pauses or wants you to hear it with excitement or with a like kind of flat tone and makes the decision to put an exclamation point or a period so that you'll hear it. But it's it's about, it's just a really clever code system. People, we're geniuses. Oh, 100%. Right? And the code varies language <laughs> to language. Yes. So yes. if you're reading French, they don't <laughs> use dialogue quotes the way we do. They use these little carrots. And here's my favorite punctuation convention. It's Spanish, where they tell you before you even start the sentence, if it's a question or an exclamation, which helps you when you're reading aloud, because they put the question mark or the exclamation point upside down, which kids think is amazing, by the way. I have wished a thousand times in my life when I get to the end and I'm like, oh, I was supposed to read it like this. And have to go back and say, okay, and, but the kids, like, that's actually a great learning experience for your kids too, is hearing how, oh, I know it has a different meaning now that I've seen the end mark. (laughs) It's exactly right. And in fact, just for fun, you could teach your kids the upside down convention just to help solidify it. One of the things, one of the tricks, since we're on punctuation, let's tell a couple of our (laughs) secrets. One of the tricks I like to do is break the rule before I teach the rule. Mm -hmm. That's a principle you can apply across the board. If you're going to teach math, break the rule before you teach the rule. There is something about violating our natural expectation that wakes up the mind and puts us in the position to now learn the proper convention. So let me give you an example. If we're teaching commas, I would suggest that we put a comma after every single word in a sentence and now read the sentence obeying the commas. So now you're going to say the little house (laughs) in the big woods. And you can feel, wow, that really makes that sentence slow as molasses, right? But then you could pull all the commas out 
there was a little house in the big woods. And suddenly it makes sense. Now, if you had a sentence that had a clause in it or several commas in a series, if you take them all out, you're going to have to race through them. There will be no meaningful pause. It will change how the sentence feels. So do a little violence with you know punctuation before you start. I love to use that activity in, in our guides. Your concept of do a little violence to the passage is really helpful putting all those commas in and letting them hear it. But Julie, this also fits in with your um, your uh, activity of like writing a sentence out on slips of paper, breaking the rules this way, cutting it up. Tell that one. Oh, yeah. So this is a really fun word scramble. So imagine you want your kids to learn about grammar. And the thing about the English language is that our grammar structure is basically word order. Like we don't change the endings of our words as much as other languages do. And the way we communicate is these building blocks of words in a particular sequence. But here's what's crazy about English. There are some words that can jump around in the sentence and the sentence still makes sense. And then there are some words that if you move them at all, even one place, it completely spoils the meaning. So instead of teaching that to your kids, take a sentence maybe write one word per sheet of paper. So it's a nice big picture, like, you know, the word the on an eight by 11 and then the word house, or you could use note cards, but like make them big enough, not tiny little writing and then shuffle them and put them on the floor. And first have your kids build a sentence with those words that doesn't make sense. Remember doing violence. They will find it tricky because their own brains are going to want to put words in the correct order. And if you start noticing that they are say, oh, that's starting to make sense. We're supposed to make it not make sense. So start there and then start seeing if you can take this word scramble to create a meaningful sentence. Here's what's totally cool. Totally cool about this idea. Sometimes your kids are going to build a sentence that makes sense. That isn't the sentence that you cut up And that is an exciting moment. Now you can start asking those questions like, well, you moved always to the end and it was actually the first word. Why can it make sense in both places? Then you get to have like a big juicy conversation about the experience of grammar, which by the way, Lisa goes to a point you made uh, in our little exchange before we started. So I want you to take up from here. Why is experience important in learning? That goes to, so this idea of having experience of an idea in order to understand it really goes back to that starting point of this conversation with ideas are wonderful. I could talk ideas all day long, but I need, it's when you're sitting down in the moment that you find out like there was a piece missing from the idea and that was the practical. So for me, it always comes back to that. So I was always looking with my kids for practical ways to make an idea meaningful. And then that work just spills completely over into writing activities for the dart or the quill. Um, One of my favorites to write about, and this has grown out of games that I played with my kids, is I love when we're doing prepositions. Oh, Um, my favorite game. (laughs) Prepositions are so easy to feel in your body. You can like, they are about the the position of one thing in relation to another or, or what kind of, you know, direction it's moving in. So 
we would take stuffed animals, take, you know, take your favorite stuffed kitty. And the cat is on the chair. The cat is under the table. How many places can they think of to put that cat around the house? And and then say where the cat is. And we're just collecting all of those prepositions. Oh, the cat is on top of the refrigerator. The cat is behind the curtain. Um, you know, the cat is is inside my sweater. <laughs> That's right. The cat is above the table. The cat is beyond my view, right? Like right. there are so many ways that you can start pulling out. And it is, it's active. You can do it with their own bodies. You can do it with a stuffed animal. You can do it with even the position of a video game character yes. with the background on the screen, right? Especially with these 3D landscapes now, you know, where they can move. So think about ways to take what's already in your child's life and tie it to something like prepositional phrases. Amazing. Oh, yes. The, the amount of learning that happened for us in Minecraft. Oh, wow. <laughs> to this day, actually. Um, no, no, I love that. And in fact... One of the ideas that we had when we were working on those kinds of language pieces, uh, nouns, verbs, adverbs, whatever, I used to try to play these games with my kids where they would actually act out the verbs. And we would, so we'd get a passage and we would look at all the quote action words. But of course, in any paragraph in a book, there are some words that are not action oriented that are verbs. And so one of the ways that I would help my kids is first we'd identify all the ones that required movement. We try and act it out, you know, talked, ate, played, jumped. But then you have something like was or <laughs> became. And so now we had to talk about these states of being. And um, one of the games that I learned in statues is this notion of action, action. It's a game called statues. So what happens is there's time going by and you're moving, moving, moving. And then all of a sudden you ring a bell and everyone goes into an action pose. They're not, they don't move anymore. They're frozen. They're a statue. And so in a sense, your kids could be acting out these verbs. And whenever you come to a state of being, it's the statue moment. They become... <laughs> They were, they just stopped moving. And so giving your kids like these two options, using your body versus sort of this, you know, more indeterminate state of being so that it resonates in the body. It's not just a concept they're trying to master. Does that sound reasonable? Do you understand? I totally love that. I love the statues piece of it. We did a lot of acting out the verbs um, or changing up the verb or playing mother may I. Oh, what and a good idea. With verbs, um, you know, mother may I skip? Yes. And if it was a verb, it was always a yes, right? Yes. Mother may I crawl? Mother may I slither? <laughs> yes. Um, and letting them, you know, get as inventive as they could, especially then they start thinking like, ooh, what gets me the farthest? Um, the <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, we had one game we we would love. This was a this was a game that grew out of a day. Everybody was fighting in the back seat. Oh no. <laughs> and after that day, we named it the Purple Cow Hula Hooped Boisterously um, because that was one of the sentences that developed in the game. So we had been kind of learning, getting wrapping their heads around, you know, parts of speech. And I said, okay, Kate, you're a noun. Um, 
what what noun are you? And she said, cow. And then I said, Erin, what kind of cow is it? And she said, a purple cow. And then Eileen, <laughs> what is the purple cow doing? The purple cow is hula hooping. Um, and then back to Kate. Um, and how is the purple cow hula hooping boisterously? There's the adverb. And so, and then I would start yelling like, okay, I would assign them all roles. And I would say, okay, um, Miss Adverb, what is the, you know, and we've been through it all again. Miss Noun, what are you? And we do it all again. And just that, so that one, you know, it's not super- embodied because they're strapped into car seats, but boy, (laughs) it goes through some long drives. Let me tell you. Well, yes. And also it is a creative task to come up with a word. I was noticing when you said hula hooping, such a rich opportunity to talk about taking a noun and verbifying it, right? Oh, one of my favorites. (laughs) Yes. And that's the thing. Like when I first wrote um, my writing manual for Brave Writer, The Writer's Jungle, One of the examples I used was the difference between walking, skipping, and hopscotching to the mailbox. That power in writing is being able to evoke something fresh for a reader a lot of times. There may be times when using the word walking to the mailbox is the perfectly appropriate usage, but it's worth it to invite some exploration. Skipping is a different experience. But hopscotching is taking a noun and using it in a way that is unexpected. It's turning it into a verb. And we do this frequently with language. And so what happens is our kids get to start to realize that it's the position. Remember I said word order creates grammar in English. It's the position of the word more than the word that determines whether it's a verb, whether it's a noun. If I say the word table, you might immediately think, well, table's a noun. But if I said to Lissa right now, let's table this discussion till later, it is suddenly a verb and slightly more interesting, right? And then if I said, I'm going to cut his hair into a tabletop cut, now it's like an adjective and it gives you a visual. So each use of table gets more interesting the more we make it do something unexpected. So much of school is not about surprise. It's about doing the predictable at the right rate for the right audience. But learning is actually about creating hooks. It's about surprise. It's about making these connections in your physiology and socially, right? Right, right. And they begin to understand that language works for you. You don't work for language. You're in charge of it, which means you get to decide how to use it. When you were talking about the the activity with the the sentence on the slips of paper, it's really fun to recognize that even with a string of adjectives, we have absorbed a particular order so that it sounds wrong if I say the orange big truck. Gosh, that's true. It should be big orange truck. Yeah, right? And if you add like old, add more... um, more adjectives to the list. And there is a particular order. No one taught us that. There was no school lesson that said, okay, now you must put these adjectives in this order. We internalized it through use and exposure. And it's really fun to help people notice that they already know so much about 
these tools that we're teaching them new ways to use or new ways to understand. So which games are you going to play with your kids this week? Melissa and I would love to hear in the comments section on our Instagram accounts where you see the post for this week's podcast. I know some of you may feel new to this idea that grammar and punctuation can be taught using your kids' bodies. I totally get that. It is new for many of us. It was new to me when I was homeschooling. The good news is Brave Writer has programs to help you get into the swing of this style of learning. Right now, we have two options you can try. So let's say you'd just like a month's worth of testing this idea. We've got that for you. Go to Brave Writers Literature Singles. The link will be in the show notes. These are handbooks that we've created that pair with a classic read aloud. And inside, we show you how to use passages from the book to create these grammar and punctuation games and activities, many of which capitalize on using your kids' bodies, like what Melissa and I are talking about in this podcast. They also come with guidelines. So once you've purchased it, you'll receive a second PDF file that gives you the down low on how to implement those lessons. Alternatively, if you want to join up with Brave Writer for a semester to finish out the school year, we've built three semester-length programs. The first one is for kids 8 to 10 called DART, and it features five children's classic books, books like The Mouse and the Motorcycle. The second one is for kids 11 and 12 called Arrow, and it features adventure stories like The Nerviest Girl in the World, written by co-host Melissa Wiley. And the third one is for high school, and it's called Boomerang, and it features five books about American perspectives. For instance, we feature Hidden Figures, the Young Reader's Edition. Each of those books is supported by a handbook that gives you these kinds of active, body-engaging activities to help your kids master literary devices, grammar, punctuation, spelling, and even literary analysis. Links to all these programs are available in the show notes. We are excited to welcome you to a whole new way of life and learning through literature. Right, and having them be the detective of the English language that they already speak masterfully and fluently, to ask them, craft a rule about adjective word order for English. I want you to design the rule. I want you to write the rule. And you're going to have to do a lot of tests and (laughs) see what the outliers are and which words it doesn't matter where they are and which words it really matters. And then I want you to write a rule and see if you can figure out the groupings. And you guys could do that as a family if your kids are really young. If they're 13 or 14, they might like impressing you with their incredible knowledge. But this is the kind of way, so just getting back to the beginning of this episode and what we're (laughs) trying to do in this podcast today, I want you to understand that when you're actually spending a lot of energy creating a plan, times for how much you're going to give attention to math or English today, worried about not getting through or getting done, wondering if they're going to pass a test at the end of the year, all that energy could be better spent thinking of ways to use your body 
to get your kids to get to know the subject area, like investing deeply, doing such a deep dive on verbs that that is all you think about for a week. Because here's what's awesome. Once you start helping your kids think this way about verbs, they're going to start borrowing that way of thinking into all the other parts of speech. They're just automatically going to ask the question, well, what's the word order for verbs? Oh, why is it sometimes I say you were and other times I say were you? And is that always true? Right? Is that always true when we're asking a question? Do we always put the verb in front of the pronoun? Start asking those questions. You've observed a pattern. Is this pattern all the time? Are there exceptions? The first time kids learn plurals, right? I was just going to ask you to tell this. (laughs) Oh my gosh, really? Yes. Um, yes. Well, tell me what you thought I was going to say. I want to hear you say it. (laughs) I thought you were going to tell about, um, you had an arrow activity about what language is it, Julie? Okay, good. I was going to tell that. So since that's (laughs) what you had in mind, that's what I will tell. So here's what it is. I I speak English, French, and Samarabic. And each of those languages forms plurals in their own way. Now, of course, English usually puts an S at the end. Occasionally, we have a word like deer that confounds us, right? There are some words that do not follow that pattern. But the vast, you know, mice instead of mouses, right? We have some, some exceptions to that rule. But by and large... If you're an an English as a second language speaker, just throw on an S and see what happens because most of the time you'll be right. But that was not true in Arabic. It kind of floored me. I I was like, wait, there's no automatic way to make something two instead of one. Nope. Now there are a few patterns or there's some things you kind of start to learn and you're like, oh, I see. If it ends in an ah sound, I add an ET sound and that's worth trying. It might not be right, but it's worth trying. Well, I had a friend who was living in Indonesia while I was working on Arabic, and we were having this like argument about how hard our languages were. And she said, my favorite thing about Indonesian is the plural is just the same noun twice. So you say daughter, daughter, house, house, you know, spaghetti, spaghetti, cup, cup. And to teach my kids what plural was, that's what we did. Because when I use the word plural, it didn't mean anything to them. And if I just said, well, two houses, and notice how there's an S sound at the end, it was overly familiar. It was so familiar that they couldn't see or hear or understand it. But when I said to them, every time today over lunch, when we're talking, you want to say a plural, I need you to just repeat the word twice. (laughs) Suddenly they're like, oh, that's plural. I need a fork fork. Hand me the quesadilla quesadilla, you know? (laughs) Where's the salsa salsa? (laughs) It's so incredibly fun. So Indonesian is the only language besides English that any of my books have been published in. Wow. I've had books that were, um, all of my Charlotte books uh, were translated into Indonesian. And when I read that activity in one of your arrows, I went and got the copy and I was looking in my book and I was like, girl, girl. (laughs) <laughs> you could see it. I could see the word. Oh, this word is twice. I bet it's the plural. And then I kind of compare it to my original. Oh, it was my. Hugely exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. And that's the thing. I think so often we're really familiar. And when we're too familiar, we stop seeing it. My therapist used to say everything becomes wallpaper eventually. And that has been like a clarion call for me. 
that whenever something has become wallpaper, it's time to rip it off and paint lime green, right? I've got to think what stops this from being wallpaper first for me. I mean, if I'm so familiar with punctuation that I have lost touch with what it means, I have to start by reinventing what it means for myself. And one of the ways I happen to do that is just because of foreign language, I've been able to sort of sometimes borrow some of that intrigue, some of that curiosity. You know, um, Lissa, we got a lot of feedback about our Canterbury Tales recitation. (laughs) (laughs) Scott was, my husband was very funny about that. He... He, he wrote me a note. He was like, the two of you and your Canterbury Tales, this is the thing you've been waiting for your whole life. <laughs> I mean, I think so. And there is something about that, right? Like when Noah was in junior high, his dad is a literature nerd, right? So Noah was reading with me like the children's version of the Canterbury Tales. I was reading it to the family. It was illustrated. It was lovely. And so one night, Noah went with his dad to watch him teach composition at Xavier University. And they were sitting in the car and Noah starts talking about the Canterbury Tales because we were reading them. And John said, Noah, they're a lot better in the original. And Noah was like in seventh grade. And so John gets the original and starts reading them to Noah and showing him like where the naughty words were in Canterbury tale Chaucerian English. <laughs> and Noah's eyes were like, what? I have just discovered a treasure trove. <laughs> and the next thing you know, they had two, just what you did with Indonesian and your book. They got two side-by-side translations and Noah started building his own lexicon, trying to translate as many of the words as he could. I mean, obviously he wasn't doing graduate school level work, but he was intrigued. It drew him into language, which, you know, for those who know the story, he ended up doing Klingon, invented languages, linguistics, and finally computer programming. Like (laughs) you see the through line, right? So there is something about taking the unfamiliar and then tying it to the familiar that creates a learning gestalt. And so that's a principle from this um, today's podcast that you can just sort of lean on. You know, if something's overly familiar, ask yourself, how can I tie this to something that will make it new again for me and then for my kids? In the realm of helping kids see how much they already know about language, if they have younger siblings or or if they ever spend time around a toddler, then they they know how adorable it is when toddlers are trying to figure out. And there, so we have a really funny moment from when my third child was born, Eileen. Um, my the next one up was two years old. Erin was two, and she called the baby Meleen. Oh, because she was at the age where it was me go, me want, me see, me lean. Oh, because it had been Eileen. It's Eileen. Isn't that cute? (laughs) Oh, it's so adorable. And those kinds of quote unquote mistakes are actually not mistakes. They are evidence of learning. You know, a lot of times parents will ask me or say to me, my child misspells. My child's a terrible speller. You know, the child's eight years old. And the question I always ask is, does the spelling choice seem like it made sense though? Like if you look at a child and they're applying the phonetics they have to the sounds that they hear, like let's say they write thick 
And all that you see is a K. There's no C next to it. And it's like T-H-I-K. The C is missing, but it's it makes sense. And perhaps now we just hone in on that CK connection and we start teaching them that this is one of the ways that these words end. But to treat it as a misspelling when the choice was logical is actually ignoring the fact that the child was using spelling skills to get that much of the word on the page. Where we have trouble is if a child spelled thick with an R in the middle of it. Now you're asking, where did the R come from? What is missing? Is this child just guessing? Are they going off of a memory of an image? What does the R mean to them? So spelling, for instance, then does take that little bit of investigation. When they misspeak, when they make a plural like mouses, they're actually obeying the rules of grammar. So these are ways to help yourself feel less panicky and just more curious, facilitating the next step into that more fluent understanding or spelling. When one of my theater classes in college, we had to memorize this poem uh, that was all about how ridiculous English spelling is. And it, it was dearest creature in creation studying English pronunciation. It's on the internet. You can find it. But even in that first sentence, you've got dearest creature and creation. You've got different ways of pronouncing those same vowel pairs. Oh, wow. <laughs> For dear creation and creature. Uh, oh, creature, wow. Right? For E-A. Wow. Yeah. And it just the whole poem is like, I will teach you in my book words like good, goose, um, something, and look. So like you've got the double O happening in all these different words, and it sounds different every time. And that's right. Uh, I love to roll that one out with kids at a certain age, you know, around 10, um, because it's really empowering to them to to understand, like, oh, it's not just me. Yes. It's not just me. And when you do it through something playful like that, that has humor to it, it doesn't have the punitive effect of expectation. Like, well, don't you know the difference between hook, look, and food yet? (laughs) Don't you know? Instead, it's like, oh, look at this. You stumbled on that thing that was from the funny poem we read. You just evidenced it right here. That's it. That's exactly the (laughs) issue. We all struggle with that. That's the kind of thing that you can do. You know, I was looking at our list. Um, One of the things that I loved doing, this was a stage game for us, was performing tongue twisters Mm. because they also make you far more conscious of sounds and pronunciation than just reading a story. And memorizing a tongue twister, I mean, that's like a party trick. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do. Because my teenage daughter and I recently memorized the longest place name in Europe. It's a Welsh word. And talk about a party trick. (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. And I remember there was this one um, youth group leader that was an actor that worked with my son's youth group. And of course, my ex-husband and I were big Shakespeare fans. And so this youth group leader found that out. And he said to Noah, he says, have you memorized the Romeo and Juliet prologue yet? No, it was in fourth grade. And I was like, wow, that, <laughs> now you've thrown down the gauntlet. We haven't done that yet. And he said to Noah, he said, you know, having a little um, a little Shakespeare ready in your pocket at any time is a quick way to impress the ladies. You know, like, 
And they memorized it. He and Johanna memorized it so easily. And it became another example of you have to listen to cadence. You're listening to the sound of the letters. You're listening to rhyme schemes. You're identifying language that is unfamiliar and correlating it to the familiar. I think what I want to say, I didn't even know we were going to go this direction. It's sounding very literary. And I want us to get back to just like some of our very easy games. Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to say was this, you will discover so much more richness in your homeschool and it will lead to a scale of satisfaction you may not yet have when you allow yourself to play, to make these connections, to get lost in a sea of tongue twisters for a whole week. What we tend to do is we rush from one activity to the next, trying to get through and get done. And we miss the opportunity for our children to show that light bulb moment where they, they're like, I get it. We're looking for epiphanies of learning, not just yes. completions, right? Yes, yes. That allowing the time to immerse, to linger. Yes. To practice, to go over to keep playing the game, you're practicing a concept maybe, but that's not what how it feels. That's not what the child thinks they're doing. They think this is so awesome. We get to keep playing this game. That's right. So let's do this. Let's just go through a bunch of the ones on our list. You And let's not tell the reasons for them. You understand okay. the reasons now. So <laughs> right. now we're just going to give you a list of practical things you can do. If you're driving, just come back later and listen again. But if you're at home, just take some notes, push pause and jot down the ones that sound like they'd be fun to try. All right, you go first. Right. Okay, so scavenger hunts. Love to do certain types of, it can be a noun scavenger hunt or an adjective scavenger hunt. These both work really well. So you give them clues like, uh, find me a noun that's tall and skinny and it has bristles on the bottom and it loves to dance across the floor. Wow. And, you know, they're going to they're gonna go find a broom. Um, or you can make it, make your clues so that more than one thing. My, it's, ta- it, it's, it's long and skinny with bristles. They could come back with a toothbrush. That's true. So you're creating clues and you can flip it, of course, and ask them to give you some clues so that you have to go on the scavenger hunt and find nouns that fit all these descriptions. Or you can do it with adjectives and say, okay, so I, uh, on your list, you have something that's purple, something that's old, something something that's fluffy, something that's smooth, something that's slippery, something that's slimy. And they love to run around the house and come back with sometimes very mischievous um, contributions. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Uh, Yes. Scavenger hunts for the win. Absolutely. Um, We like to do something where we would make spelling lists taken from a favorite subject area. So this would be a personally curated list of impressive terminology that goes with a kid's passion. So it might be medieval equipment. It might be, Katrin did hers from fashion magazines, like ruching and bustle, right? Um, It might be video game lexicon. It might be all the weapons they collect in Halo. But it can also be things like Noah went through a roller coaster phase. And the amount of vocabulary related to physics that is part of the field of roller coasters became a 
language list that we used and we even played spelling and we would actually take a fun spelling test because it would be all these words that they love to do, love to learn. I love that. Um, for to, to help understand conjunctions, sometimes a really easy one that I would do would be to get some cookies out and say, would you like this or that? Would you like this and that? Would you like, uh, you can have, this, but not, not that. This. <laughs> and um, just the, I mean, it's such a simple, that's a short one that happens like over lunch, yes. but it starts to really click that, oh, these are words that have to do with hooking things together and making choices. Or <laughs> Right. Wow. I love that one. I, especially the cookies sounds perfect. Um, here is a theater game to teach onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia mm. is just a word that sounds like the sound it makes. So the word buzz Sounds exactly like bzz. that's why we say buzz. So here's what you do. You have one child stand up. This is going to be an acting game. But you have one child stand up and they start making what looks like a movement that you would make if you were a part of a machine. So you might take your fist and punch it out and pull it back, punch it out, pull it back. And you might be saying clunk, 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 clunk. And the next child will get up and say another onomatopoeia word to hook up and become part of that machine. So they might, when you put your fist out, they might tap it with their hand and pull their hand back. And so they might say, click. So you're going, clunk, click, clunk, click, clunk, click, right? And the next person joins and then they might add shoop, 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 shoop. And every person adds some kind of a machine sound. Now you could do the same thing and pretend to be barnyard animals. Everybody joins and they act out what a cow sounds like, what a pig sounds like. This is especially powerful for kids under 12, probably not as many 16-year-olds ready to jump in and play this game. However, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> we actually used onomatopoeia to help teach our children how to blow their nose. Oh. Um, and this is something that I have since learned um, a lot of parents struggle with. Like, how do I get my two-year-old to blow their nose? Like, I'm holding a tissue up, but they're not doing anything. And I know that it's it's on the minds of a lot of parents because I once blogged about it like 10 years ago. And to this day, it is one of my most highly searched posts. Oh my um, gosh. How do I teach my child to blow their nose, my toddler? So we would use onomatopoeia for animal sounds, doing all of the animal sounds. And we would get to bull and I would say a bull snorts and we would like snort it. And well, now they know. And so when I wanted them to blow their nose, I would put up the tissue up to their nose and say, be a bull. <laughs> what does a bull say? And they would snort, you know, they would push the air out their nose. They got it. That is, <laughs> that's a bonus. I didn't anticipate. This is the high quality content you come to this podcast for. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Uh, the last one I'm going to talk about is acting out setting in a book. So if we're thinking about like trying to teach, what is the setting like? Setting is trying to accomplish a certain mood, a certain way of experiencing the story at a certain juncture. The whole book isn't the same setting. It changes. You know, you go from being in a kitchen to being in a meadow to being at a, a theme park, right? But one of the things that you can do to help your kids feel what that's like is suggest different spaces and then act 
ask them to act these out, like how they might walk. So what if we said they're in a space invaded by honey? What if we said they're in snow? What if we said they had to walk through mashed potatoes or through feathers or through taffy or through pea soup or tar? The reason that we could try this with our kids, not only does it just get them up moving and making these amazing correlations, like, wow, a body that moves like honey is a very different body than a body that moves through the wind or against the wind or on you know, a, a Teflon surface. Part of what you're doing is you're starting to help your kids experience like the mood of language. What does it create? If we say you're outside and it's like a pea soup day, what should your child be imagining? What should they experience? If you say it was a honey-colored sunshine day, is that a day you're going to be moving really fast or more slowly? If you say his, um, you know, uh, let me look at one of my lists here. Hold on. Um, if you say something like it was a boomerang, it was like taffy, it was something push me, pull you. After having acted out this stretchy and retracting feel of taffy, when you come across that word, it's going to create a completely different impression in your mind. So much of writing is trying to create experiences inside your mind and body. And so by having your kids act out different ways of behaving with different terminology, they're starting to make that connection and it helps that language spring to life. So when physical activity that I like to include if my kids, uh, young kids are at the table actually writing something um, at the, at the point when they're learning like how to indent. So say they're doing copy work and they're trying to get their brains around indentation, uh, which can sometimes seem a little abstract. Just, I find a placeholder, usually an M&M or a Skittle, Skittle. <laughs> um, chocolate chip, a button would work, a penny would work. Something that's little that you just say, okay, put your penny at the beginning of the paragraph and, or put your chocolate chip and then start your first word next to the chocolate chip. And then they go on and write it. And the next line, there's no chocolate chip. So they know that they're going to start up against the margin and then they get to eat the chocolate chip. Um, I wish I had known that one. What I did instead is we created a sheet of paper with an indentation margin and we put that behind the sheet of paper they were writing right. on. And so they had that as a visual cue, but my kids would have totally been down with the chocolate chip idea. That is just brilliant. Um, and obviously not everyone can eat sugar or chocolate or whatever. So a penny or a button, a colorful button would work as well. Right. I do really love though, anything tactile like that, because it just hooks into the body differently. When I was looking at the Canes, you know, 12... Um, natural learning principles. The one thing that I think we want to keep in mind is that we organize our memories through two particular methods. One is a spatial memory system. And then the other is a set of systems for rote learning. So when you are dealing with something like the chocolate chip, you're helping them with that spatial system. You're helping them actually store in their memory the felt experience of an indentation, right? That's what you're doing. Um, but then once they've got it, they are going to be practicing it in a rote manner. Every time you indent, there's always going to be this placeholder, right? So we have both things going on. These are not one-offs. 
Our kids get there through practice. They get there through creating these structures that allow them to build those internal connections and then repeat them over and over again. When Stephen, my son, was a baby, uh, we learned about something called suck, swallow, breathe synchrony. Mm. And this was so fascinating to me uh, because the very first combination of actions that the human brain figures out is how to suck and breathe at the same time. Mm. And throughout your life, your brain relies on that. So why do people bite their nails? Why do they chew on the end of their pencils? You look around a conference room table and people have stuff in their mouths or they're involving their mouths in the conversation in some way. Uh, Michael Jordan sticking out his tongue when he's shooting a hoop. Yeah, Steph Curry chewing on his mouth guard when he shoots. Yes, yes, yes. Your brain is relying on the very first complex thing it figured out. So Stephen's OT, when he was nine months old, told me um, anytime he's trying to learn something new, if you give him something to eat, it can help. Now, I know that this can be like... Obviously, we don't want to be feeding our kids sweets all the time, but I did notice that if they were um, really working on like a page of math and it required concentration, giving them bubble gum, we call it bubble gum math in my house, like wow. all these years later, giving them something to chew, gummy bears, pretzels, something, it was like it just served as a focusing aid for the brain. A thousand percent. I think this is why I've been such a fan of Poetry Tea Time, why I'm always talking about adding snacks. There is something, and you know it as an adult, right? You're watching TV, you eat popcorn. Um, You know, we make a snack when we're getting ready to sit down and do a long taxing, you know, activity on the computer. There is, I, I just never knew though that that was part of a learning mechanism that that we're partly reaching for that. <laughs> My brain is now saying, "Is that why I'm so hungry when I'm writing a book?" <laughs> oh, I am real. always finding myself heading out from my computer to the cabinets to get a snack, and then I come back and go back to writing. Is that why? I always, always, always gummy bears were my go-to writing food. And this was long before my son was born. I had written like six novels oh my <laughs> before gosh. he was born. And um, and then there came a point where I was trying to cut back on sugar. So I gave up the gummy bears. Well, guess who had a whole lot of trouble writing? Like I ground to a halt and I wow. had no idea until years later when Stephen was born, that that was probably part of it, that my brain was used to that chewing mouth activity as a focusing aid. That's me with tea. So Mm -hmm. I drink tea all day. Um, It's not, it, it isn't even tea by the time the day is over because I just keep adding hot water to the same one tea bag. So by the end of the day, it's basically dirty colored water. Like who would want to drink it? But it is the um, action. It is the lifting up, the sipping, the putting it back down. And I find it very soothing, very supportive. Interestingly, when I'm out shopping, I have zero interest in drinking anything. I don't go to Starbucks and just get coffee. I'm not. So I know it's related to work. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, I just never knew that that was actually like a proven 
brain dynamic. I'm I'm so excited. I knew Lisa <laughs> was going to teach me new things. This is amazing. Amazing. Um, Lisa, this was awesome. I what I want to say, and I'm hoping this is what you're all getting from today. This is the kind of stuff we spend a lot of time thinking about when we write Brave Writer products. So if this doesn't come naturally to you, like jump on board with us because the way that we do everything in Brave Writer takes this way of thinking into account. So if you came into Brave Writer looking for like the worksheet about nouns where there are sentences and you just circle the nouns, no wonder you're like, what did I just download? Why am I running around the house with my children looking for tall, bristly things? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> But this is why. Because what we've discovered, and it's supported by all of the learning, brain research, science, whatever you want to call it, is that when we pair the body with the learning, the kids retain it. They make it their own possession. It stops being a theoretical set of things to memorize that are concepts for the test only. And you will actually see momentum build because your kids will actually believe that when you have a lesson, it's going to be fun or interesting or good. You know, they'll start to trust you. Like if you feel this antagonism with your kids, it's partly because the stuff you're serving isn't interesting enough. And ask yourself, would you be interested? Would you be interested? Is the thing you're asking your child to do something that you would like to do in your free time? What do you think about that, Lissa? Is that that too harsh? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so because we've been there. Yes. I learned how to see when eyes were glazing over or when somebody has started to climb on the back of the couch and the couch is not going to hold up to me continuing to pontificate. And I better find a more interesting way, a more engaging way. I think engaging is a really good word to keep in mind. Perfect. Uh, How can I engage them? So when I'm writing a dart, I'm imagining, I'm talking to another parent who's got a child in front of them. And I'm thinking, what can I do to get the two of them having fun together? How can they be laughing by the end of this experience? A hundred percent. Like when you talked about the throwing of the beanbag, you know, to go through math facts, we did that with a Frisbee. We did it with a lacrosse (laughs) ball. We did it where they were jumping on a trampoline and we would throw the ball at them to try and hit them. And if you hit them, then they had to do a math fact. They had to answer a long math problem. Like get off the kitchen table. It is not the only place to learn, right? Yeah, it's probably my least favorite. (laughs) Right. In fact, if it's really hard for you to think of getting off the kitchen table, just sit under it tomorrow. (laughs) Do all your lessons (laughs) under the table. That would be a great beginning. Then you'll slowly migrate away. (laughs) I love that idea. Thank you, Lissa. Another one in the bag. Yay, Julie. (laughs) So fun. Hey, everyone. Natalie here with another five-star review. And this one comes from Early Bookworm. It's titled, Most Useful, Helpful Homeschool Advice Ever. I was so happy to find this podcast. I have loved Julie Bogart's YouTube videos and blog for a long time, and a podcast I can listen to while I walk is a welcome addition. Julie always has a perspective on homeschool topics that I find helpful, workable, and malleable to my own family's particular needs. 
so much advice to moms in the homeschool world comes off as preaching the only correct method or comes with the implication that anything less than perfect execution will not yield good results. I appreciate Julie's approach of thoroughly researching many different methods and then talking about the ways in which she has used parts of them or combinations of them and how she advises families to look to the student and be willing to take parts or holes of various methods and use what works for the child at that time. She dwells in reality and wants to help home educators and students have a fun, meaningful experience while they learn. I find her advice invaluable, and I know my own household has benefited immensely from the wisdom she so generously shares. Thank you to Early Bookworm. Don't forget to submit your five-star review so we can share it on the podcast. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to The Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you.